0: Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armis. First, I just want to apologize for the silence the last few weeks. We've had some technical difficulties as we've switched editing softwares and editors and producers and we're trying to get our stuff together and organized. So thank you for your patience. I promise it was worth it though because we have some amazing interviews coming up. In today's episode, I chat with Alyssa Aldape about Encanto, the movie which is super exciting, but I wish I could have uploaded this a couple weeks ago because I know the Encanto buzz has died off a little bit. But either way, it's okay because the stuff Alyssa says is still amazing and so helpful for us, whether it's connected to the movie or not. We chat about a whole bunch of great things, including the church as La Casita, how we are to wrestle with power and our gifts, and my favorite, Mirabel, as a calling doula. Anyway, there are a few things I love more than thinking about Disney movies theologically. So I hope you enjoy this episode and welcome to The Protagonistas. Okay, so um today's episode of of the protagonistas we are chatting with Alyssa Aldape about and this is so exciting because I've never actually done like a I don't know a cultural commentary on a Disney movie (laughs) (laughs) but we'll be talking about Encanto so I'm so excited Alyssa thank you so much for joining me
1: thank you for having me Kat I'm excited to be here
0: yeah so Mm -hmm. I was just so fascinated first of all um, not not just with this movie because you know I I literally just saw it so I'm like you know <laughs> dealing with a newborn and I'm like I watch things in like that literal five fun. minute increments. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, but we're out. you know, we're in a group chat, us and with some other Latinas. And uh, I was just fascinated reading the conversations and having not seen the movie and then finally seeing the movie. And like, I went back and like, oh, okay, yeah, this makes sense. So anyway, I was really excited to talk about this movie because I feel like there are so many um, wonderful and also not so wonderful things to talk about it and to tease out about it. And um, it's always so fun to do that. And I especially wanted to speak with you because you make such a wonderful connection with the movie and the church. And we'll talk about that toward the end. And so I want to um, also kind of, you know, look at it theologically. Before we talk about Encanto, I would love for you to share with us about your spiritual background um, to tell us about. Yeah, just tell us about yourself, your spiritual and cultural background and, and where your journey
1: to where you are right now okay so grew up in texas in south texas uh born and raised there was raised in the hispanic baptist church um it's some of my first memories Uh, my dad was an associate pastor for years you know it's the place that taught me how to love god and how to be like jesus they went to ga's girls in action on wednesday nights to learn about white missionaries and all the good that they did across the world um, it was, I mean, it was the, it was the formative years of my faith. Um, it was the Hispanic Baptist church in Texas, which, and you know, if you're, you don't really know the history behind it. Um, the foundations of the Hispanic Baptist church, I mean, are rooted in, you know, some racism and some white supremacy in that. You know, there was, there was a mission for Baptists to come down and convert the heathen Catholics. Um, in Texas and so then you know then we eventually outnumbered them and so then they created like heaven forbid we all worship together so then Hispanic Baptists were created you gotta love it Um, and so it's very funny like when you grow up in Texas particularly as you know Latino you in big major cities in Texas you know you have first Baptist church first Baptist church it's whatever whatever but then there's also first Mexican Baptist church um, because let's just broaden that even more. Right. It's just all Mexican. So first Mexican Baptist church of San Antonio, that's where I went. And then it's all just called Primera. Like everybody just called right. it Primera. Like, oh yeah, I go to Primera in San Antonio. Like I go to Primera Dallas. Um, so like that was a whole thing and which was very mind blowing that no one else had that outside of Texas growing up. And I think for me, uh, growing up growing up Mexican in San primarily San Antonio, South Texas, there there was a lot of so like you know uh, pulses that we kind of uh, common things that we all shared right like oh you know we we all speak spanish we speak this form of text texts we share these parts of culture but then at the same time you know because re- like faith is so tied in, into our culture there were aspects of it that i didn't really understand because you know for my family you know my, my mom when they came to the us you know, there was this evangelical pastor who, you know, was like, was trying to convert my grandfather. And then they did. And it was, it was almost as if to become a Baptist for them was to leave behind part of their culture and identity um, in Mexico. And, you know, for them, it was a very, it was, it was a bright light and it was a, a bastion for them. And also, I think for me, it was a loss of culture that we didn't grow up. We weren't able to grow up with, as you know, as then the children of right. you know, our, our parents who, who immigrated here. And so there was kind of re- realizing that more towards like my later years, like, or later years, 10, 11, 12 and seeing like, oh, when something was deemed, oh, that's Catholic, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's idol worship, oh my God. Right. I cannot believe like a church, there would be like a señora who or like an hermana, that's what we called them at church. I like, oh, an hermana, we're like, that's Catholic. And why would you, what would you, like, why would you worship the, do- the nurse when you could, when the doctor, is right there. And I was like, okay, but like my mom's a nurse, that's mean. Um, But that was, that was the upbringing that I came into was, you know, this tension even within my own faith and culture of trying to find identity and leaning into it and also recognizing the missing pieces within it. And then even within, you know, the, the culture recognizing that there was very much a, there was a power at play within you know people within our communities who were here legally or or who weren't and knowing how that was a big power dynamic for grown-ups um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and so there yeah so growing up within that um while also being told by these same adults oh jesus is love and god is love like okay um so Yeah. yeah grew up grew up um in texas uh my parents eventually became missionaries themselves, and we I, we moved to India when I was thirteen. Grew up in India, um, which was another place where faith really came to a crossroad for me as a person. Which was interesting, as a person of color who grew up in in, the, in America, right? Where you know this was a Christian nation, and then going to a place where maybe your faith doesn't you know isn't doesn't get everything right. Um, mm-hmm. And being asked to look in the mirror of Christianity and like, oh, hey, maybe this didn't get everything right. Yeah, um, yeah. And what are what are the ways that, you know, what are the critiques that people actually have that are fair and true and honest? Which I think was, you know, for me, that was very, I was very thankful for that experience. So, yeah, went to, when I grew up in India, my that was a big part of my faith journey for me. And then came back to America for college, decided to go to school in the South. I don't know why, like, all good <laughs> missionary kids go to Baylor. And I was like, I'm going to be a rebel. No, I go to Sanford, which is basically small Baylor. So went to Sanford, um, was another just encounter of experiencing American Christianity or in that context was very limited. And so coming back to it and being very shocked by essentially blatant racism. Um, right. and for my understanding of, you know, well. We affirm all people, but never seeing it in practice, I think was, and, and I know any any young person comes to that point of recognizing the cracks in the institutions yeah. of their faith. But to see see both the the cracks that everyone that you know that my peers were seeing, my white peers saw, while also trying to point out the casual racism taking place, right. was was difficult. Yeah, uh, that was, I think, for me a point where, you know, I had to ask myself, am I, you know, am I willing to just kind of, okay, well, maybe those people were just having a bad day or maybe they're just not like that or maybe they are just old. Mm-hmm. Or was I going to say, no, this isn't right. and <laughs> We mm-hmm. shouldn't be putting up with this. So that's kind of always been, you know, the, a part of my faith journey was really understanding how power was at play within the community, within the scriptures that I was taught, the stories that I was taught, and then within my own life and recognizing where my own power was and is, and, you know, now as a person who have been working, I worked in churches for almost 10 years. Then in March, I um, decided to step back from church work and, you know, try to figure out what is next. Um, But still also recognizing, you know, if we truly believe God is not done speaking, then I have to believe that for myself. Still navigating that while also trying to hold true to the understanding that God is bigger than than any type of concept of what calling is and what faith is or how I, or any other person can define it. um, But still just as close to say, you know, what is true is, is good and loving. And so, yeah, yeah. I hope that's like an easy, like a, I, in a nutshell. That's my, <laughs> thing. my I life. like literally have
0: so many follow-up questions that I feel like we're not even going to get to So I will just ask you a couple. I'm yeah. so interested how you talk about power and I'm just so interested in your, it's funny because you say formative years, but like what really is formative years? All of it's formative, but like you're right. It's all. <laughs> right. But like your time in in a Hispanic church and like being basically part of an immigrant community in the US and formulating your identity and your faith in a very complicated space. And then moving to India. And then also, I mean, you know, cause there's so much at play there Um, considering that you are also part of a, you know, non-dominant culture in, in India. Um, but the power dynamics there because you guys are missionaries. And so you mentioned power and how you're, you're, you know, you've just, cause that is a, a difficult thing. We have, I feel like power, the same thing with privilege, like it's, it's constantly moving. Like our, you know, we have varying levels of privilege and, in some places I have more power than I do in others. And you know, so it's this thing that we're always having to understand and re-evaluate. And so I just want to hear more about um, yeah, that transition from being part of an immigrant community in Texas to then moving to India and then moving back, you know, what was that sort of like?
1: Yeah. So, and I would, I would say like, even within, you know, our, our family was so involved in church. Like, I mean, so involved, I didn't understand that people did things other than church on Wednesday nights Mm -hmm. until we started going to white church (laughs) when they were like, Oh, (laughs) we're just not going today. I was like, you're just not going (laughs) on a Wednesday. Okay. (laughs) If your name gets called out of the book okay. but like it was so and so and I, I will say it was an immigrant community in that you know so many of us Came from a family of immigrants, whether it was three generations back, one generation right. back, or we were, ourselves were immigrant. Um, you know, I was first, I'm first generation. There were kids who would show up in Sunday school who like had just gotten here and they're like, they don't speak English. I'm like, okay, right. so we're doing Sunday school in Tex Mex today. And mm-hmm. it was, it was a very fascinating place because even within that community, power was at play with, you know, mm-hmm. whether if there was somebody in the church who said, I don't really like what's happening can we change this? Maybe someone who had more privilege legally or not could say I'm like, could threaten them and say, Oh, you don't like what's happening here. You know what? I don't like when people are here. Like it was just so wild that that was even within our own community happening. Um, and I, and I say it, it is a complicated relationship because we were you know, the, the, the understanding of Christianity we had, like, we also had pictures of white Jesus, um, in our church. And so there was still this sense of the proximity to whiteness was considered good and holy. Um, and maybe necessarily, you know, it wasn't said out loud. It wasn't said, you know, by Sunday school teachers, um, that's not like found in the Bible, but, you know, there were, you know, oh, the, the girls who could pass as white got to play Mary or, Mm. you know, the, the, the family who had green eyes and who had, you know, lighter brown hair, oh, just so much prettier. Um, and so it, it was definitely still in the culture. And I know all of, you know, there are many communities and, 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 you know, in our, in our Latin communities who deal with colorism and you know the, the, the obsession with the proximity to whiteness, um, and so that was all. That was a fascinating piece to that. And again, recognizing the power, like okay, well, in in this bigger in this bigger context, you know, people we are people of color, we are Latinos. Um, there, it is still a very white culture, <laughs> um, but knowing the power that we held um, within those circles, and then you know, again, moving to India, it was always interesting because. You know, the people would assume like, oh, you're American, therefore you have X, Y, and Z. And like, um, actually, no, if you actually put me back in America, I don't have X, Y. Maybe I have X and Z or maybe not Y. So again, grappling with, right, the layers of privilege and recognizing, well, yes and no, and just understanding the layers that, that come with that. And so that India was, it was a good place. It was an interesting place um, to be as the child of missionaries, because it was very interesting that people assumed my brother and I were both there as the same, doing the same thing my parents were doing. It was like, no, we're the codependents. And uh, navigating that with other young people who, you know, went to Catholic schools there and who said, oh, this is my understanding of what Christianity is. And it wasn't a good one. (laughs) And navigating that and having to really sit with my own belief system and oh there are actually harms that it has done not just to me personally but to other people and what does it mean to be a person of christ and what does it mean to be saved like that was i mean being in india was the first place that realizing or understanding the idea of salvation and being saved i really had to sit with and think for myself is this is this something that i think that god i was taught about who is a loving God really truly wants us to do, and in, in the manner in which we're doing it. And so then, you know, going to college in the South, where you know, again, I think the race, you know, in Texas, I never experienced. I mean, I probably microaggressions, I'm sure, um, but I think going to South, going to a school in the South, in Alabama, um, in Birmingham, with its own history of racism, and learning the history. In more in in, in, a, in more in depth understanding of what happened there and what took place, and seeing how quickly people said, "Well, we're over that now," because you know we're we're over that. But kind of seeing it again, the power dynamic play out in you know in in the way in the way jobs were, the way people were represented in jobs and in schools and in structures. Uh, I was like, "Are y'all sure we're over this now?" Because it don't look like what it is yeah and, and again seeing that come from a christian standpoint of people who were like well you know we we all love god here i'm like but not that that's not my understanding about how we're supposed to love god yeah that was it was an interesting again just playing on the power um and what does it mean to wield it and use it right
0: yeah it really does seem like you've um had to wrestle with your identity in multiple ways in a lot of different spaces and so i'm sure that there's been so much uh there in a lot of yeah different areas um and in a lot of different ways and so that's so interesting like i said i wish i could ask you so many more follow-up questions but i do want to talk about encanto (laughs) maybe we'll do a part two okay so you wrote a, an opinion piece on Encanto, which I thought was really good, um, just kind of wrestling with it. And I'm sure that there was so much more that you wanted to say. So let's start with, well, first, I just wanted to ask, do you identify with any of the characters of the story?
1: I don't know who you're, <laughs> what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> I was planning on Instagram to post the picture, the like the side by side that you did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god when that like and i even texted in the group chat when we we're chat, chatting about it and i was like i know this is important stuff happening and also wow huge moment for brown girls with curly hair and glasses but yes. that's not the point here um
0: really yeah funny.
1: no when the, when she comes out in the movie like you know my my fiance nick he just kept like looking at me and he's like do you do you, <laughs> do do you see what, what i see like i don't i don't know what you're talking about nope <laughs> and i just i like fangirling all over the place finally we have our own version of a princess multiple princesses actually in my opinion yeah
0: characters for sure
1: yeah i think you know i i've i've been i've been thinking about this because um i don't know if you've seen you know people have really had some nerve in the last few weeks of making enneagram charts of like Encanto characters which was a very white thing to do in my opinion and I was like please don't do that not yet let's not (laughs) let's just not right now but I think I think any child of immigrants can relate to in any aspect a lot of the different grandchildren or children in that movie because I was like okay in reality I look like Mirabel, I get it, but also I'm actually Peppa in just the way I let my emotions just like you know what this is how I feel and I'm gonna be okay with my tears and how big they or how big my feelings get. But I think Mirabel, her character is just I think right now for what I just where I am in life I just could relate to her in this in this sense of, you know, I think in the movie, you know, every character has this gift, right? Everybody, right. every character has this gift and they, they lean into it and it's, it becomes their identity and who they are. And, you know, in the movie, we learned that Mirabel just, she didn't get a gift or in, in the sense that she didn't get her door. She didn't get the glowing light the way her cousins and her aunts and uncles and mother did. And she lives, she has to live with with that truth, while everyone around her tells her in word, "Oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. You're you're still you're still part of us. Like you're still mm-hmm. all are welcome. You're still welcome here." And yet, in that scene, when everyone takes that picture, and she is just left mm-hmm. out of it. Oh my god! And so, yeah. So it's this person who's trying to navigate. Well, what what does it mean to to be told to be welcome that I'm welcome here? But also really not in practice, Mm -hmm. Um, and then in a way, seeing the cracks in you know in the ways that this system that we that she's told is perfect because it's wonderful and it's a it's a beautiful celebration. And she's like, well, and also it's also this. um,
0: Oh, I got goosebumps! Like her ability to see the cracks in the system that's not working. Yeah, Um, that's really good. Really, really good and did I interrupt you were you going to say something else no no that was oh, just no. uh, yeah Mirabel <laughs> yes <laughs> okay I love that um so you say and I want to talk a little bit more about those gifts or a little bit more mm-hmm. about um you know kind of teasing that out a bit you say um, Mirabel's gift it turns out is the gift of truth intending. she finds a way to guide her family into their truth while also helping them explore ideas they would not have otherwise can you Talk to me a little bit about that about this idea of truth intending, um, and the gift that yeah, that she maybe doesn't even rea- or she doesn't realize she has that, um, we see throughout the movie.
1: Yeah, so, um, I think the scene because on my like sixth or seventh time watching it, um, <laughs> <laughs> I love how you just throw that in there on my sixth or seventh time watching it. <laughs> I've watched it so many times, mostly because I was doing it for the article, and then also it was like, right. okay, I just want to like listen to the soundtrack again while also watching the movie. There was a particular scene that just kind of clicked for me with that when I sent it to the group chat. It's when, you know, the little, her her cousin Antonio is getting his gift and he's so scared and he's like, I need you. And so like, you know, she walks up and she holds his hand and I'm just like going to tear up because it was the mm-hmm. sweetest moment. But seeing how she does that for each character, mm-hmm. like whether it was Antonio or Isabella where, you know, she... Why, or her other sister, Louisa, where she walks beside them as you know, she's like, "Hey, I'm I'm sensing something here beyond what people identify and see you identify you as or see you as. What what is it? And so she slowly walks with them in you know in their lives and you know kind of bringing, helping them bring out what they're trying to name and things that they haven't been able to say out loud. And so seeing her do that for her cousins and her sister, I think that was, that's when it clicked for me. It was like, no, this is her gift. It is her gift yeah. to allow her, allow people to dream. She's able to tend that for them and to help her, particularly for her older sister, for the sisters, for the women, you know, who are finally able to say like, I'm just so stressed. I can't carry this anymore. Mm-hmm. And the other one says, I'm supposed to, like, my, is my only gift supposed to be that I'm beautiful? Like, I don't want right. to just do that and to allow women in these contexts to be able to say that was just like yeah no Bell's gift is much more powerful than I think we've given her credit for
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so you use the phrase or I guess the words um calling doula to mm-hmm. sort of Um, describe and I thought that that was and I had read that before I watched the movie and I was like ooh that is so (laughs) powerful she's a calling doula can you talk to me a little bit about that and also just the the notion of identity within that within calling you know just this idea of calling and also because I I feel like calling is is complicated there's so many different ways that we can think about it and talk about it I think that to think of like what I've said in the past and I don't think it necessarily applies to this but I think a lot of Western or maybe even like white European sort of idea of, of calling can be very privileged, right? Like, Oh, you know, what's my calling when it's like, well, for a lot of people, they don't have that privilege. Like they're just surviving, you know, like my calling is to survive, you know, Um, my calling is to feed my family. Um, and so I think that that, um, that, that's sort of how I've thought about calling. But then also in this light, I think it, it is beautiful and it is challenging that it is in the context of, you know, a Latino community and how people do have specific things that they it may not be called calling, but many things that they're expected, many expectations or, um, you know, a lot of these things. So anyway, I thought that that was really beautiful how How you use calling doula and turning that around and saying, no, but like people have gifts and it's a gift of hers to call out those gifts and others. You know, like we need those people in our communities and our lives and in the church, and we need those people that are going to kind of lead people in that. So, talk to me a little bit about that, about (laughs) calling doula, identity, all of that. Hey, everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, This podcast has been important for so many listeners and I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas.
1: Yeah, so I will say it came from, uh, I wrote a journal article a few months ago about calling. Um, one, because I'm for me, working that out for myself and like what is calling, especially after leaving church work. And like I've mentioned, you know, when I think so many of us, we have been taught or maybe conditioned to think that church calling, being a pastor, is a lifelong thing. It is what you're supposed to identify, like it is the only thing you it becomes your personality. It's the only thing you're allowed to identify as. And again, it's one of those things that we say in practice when somebody steps back from that or says, I'm leaving in practice, you know, in word we say, oh, you know, that's a brave thing to do. It's fine. It's good. But in practice, we, I don't think we really practice that well. I think it's still seen as, oh, to leave that calling is to be a failure in some way. And, you know, I think we have done a Harm to people when we say your only calling is to do this one very specific thing. And so in this article, you know, I breaking that down and like, what is calling? I never got my mountaintop experience where I was told exactly what to do. But what I have had has been people in my life who have tended to me and have seen my gifts and have seen, have been advocates for me in ways that I couldn't necessarily see for myself yet. And so, like, is is it a mountaintop experience or is it a midwife? Or really is it a doula, a person who's holding our hand as we do the real hard work of discovering and discerning and imagining who we could be. So uh yeah, I I um for me, I think that is that is why the concept of doula was so important. And I say that I need to name, I say that as a person who has never given birth, who's never, you know, been a doula, but knowing so many people who have done that or who have been a doula for others. And then knowing that doula is more than just birthing, there are abortion doulas, there are death doulas. And to know that that there is a person who guides and tends to the person crossing some sort of threshold. That's such a sacred thing to do. And I I, I think it's, for me, I think that was, um, that was an important piece of what is calling, you know, is it is it us individually only understanding it for our own individual selves or is this, you know, or is calling, are we all calling dualism in a way that, you know, it takes community to help us imagine and discern and name things that we wouldn't have named ourselves, right? If we didn't have someone there to advocate for us or to, or to tend to us or help draw those words or feelings out. Yeah. And so there was a part, I think it's the end song where I think Abuela says you are more than your gift. And again, going back to the concept of the sisters where, you know, Luisa was just strong, right? She's just strong. That's her thing. But she could also be kind and soft and funny. Um, And the other, you know, Isabella, who's pretty, she's the pretty one. And I mean, I know in my own experience, there was, there was this sense of, you couldn't be both end of something, you know, right? Like to in, in for for girls for women, one if you were the pretty one, that was like, oh, you've made it. You you are pretty. Right. You've made it. You you're gonna you're gonna hit the jackpot in you know all things that women are expected to do, but you also couldn't be strong. I didn't, you know, you know, I think to see ways that both of them and all of the women, really everyone, not just the women, um, everyone could be something beyond what their gift was. Um, I think that's beautiful. And I think is an important message for anyone. You are beyond what the world has told you you're supposed to be. You're beyond what the world's definition of calling or gift is, which I think is important, especially right now during this great resignation where everyone is you know, at home has more time to sit and think, well, I guess in the first part of the pandemic, where we all had more time to sit and think about what we're doing with our lives and what we're doing with the work that we, we put into the world. And so, or the things that we give into the world. And so, you know, people were saying, was this, is this what I want to do? Is this my one thing? Mm -hmm. And so seeing people do that, whether, and, and, discerning that in group chats, in, you know, on, on Marco Polo's with their friends or in text, like seeing people work that out um, is, is such, it's such an important, I think, thing that we need, particularly in faith circles. It's important to talk about.
0: Yeah, that's so good. Uh, I love how you initially started talking about calling and how, you know, we have this idea that calling is like this one thing that we have to do and that doesn't change. And, you know, obviously that's not the case, right? Like we're, as you just mentioned, you know, we are transforming and becoming. And I think that coincides perfectly with this idea that like, no one person is one thing, you know, because as we're evolving and developing, like she's not just strong, right? Like she's all these other things, as you mentioned. And I think that that just goes well with as we evolve and change. So does our quote unquote calling or what we're supposed to be doing. And these are constantly evolving dynamics um, because we are evolving people. And our faith is evolving and our, you know, um, we're stepping in and out of different seasons and different things. And, you know, as I, I I just had a baby. And so, so, so many things in my life are going to change. And so therefore, you know, Mm -hmm. so I love that it's this idea that, um, you know, it's almost like this sacred, you know, constant thing that God is within that. And I love that you mentioned, um, and it happens in community, right? Like, like, Mm -hmm. we're, you're evolving as people are, are calling out, "Hey, you've changed in this way," or "Hey, I see this developing in you," or "Hey, you know, you've grown so much in this area." You know, I think about how much I've changed as I've healed from childhood, this or that, or you know, yeah. um, and so many things start to become or just change in my life. And so I think that that's beautiful. This idea of an evolving calling and and or and also like just an evolving identity and um, and how we do see that in the movie. You know, how people are, you know, they, they change and not necessarily they stop being strong, but they're more than that. um, Yeah. 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 And I so loved this image that you mentioned of, of, you know, how the doula is a sacred thing. I think, you know, the same thing, um, thinking about midwifery and all these people who are, you know, helping to draw out and helping to call Mm -hmm. out things or helping to walk people through um, hard moments. Um, and I'm wondering, do you think that the church, um, doesn't see that as important as other things or, or where's that disconnect? Um, because we understand those to be so sacred things, but what, what would you think, or what's, I don't know, sort of just your opinion on that. I'm, I'm genuinely just want to know what you have to say on that. Like, what is, where's that disconnect or why is that disconnect?
1: Ah, uh, this is, this to be like a whole part too. Um, like just like a series. I think, so for me, the, the way, you know, in the article, you know, I did write about, it was all, it was about diversity and like the church. I wrote about how the church was kind of in a, in a way that casita, you know, I think for the last 10 years, right. We've been saying the church is in decline. There's any, like every six weeks, there's like a Pew research study about how it's in decline or how this particular group of popu- group of the population is leaving the church or this one's coming back. Um, but I think for the most part, you know we we, the royal we, the Church of Jesus Christ, um, I think there has been more a concern about protecting the institution of the church than there has been the people. And if it was about the people that we're protecting, it is about the people who wield the power who are essentially still protecting the institution, right? And so I think there are good intentions. I want to believe that there are good intentions in that, but it goes back to power and it goes back to, you know, are are we willing to redistribute that power? Are we willing to relinquish relinquish it for the people that God has remind has reminded us time and time again. It's the ones who we don't think of as powerful are the ones who Jesus has told us, those are the, those are the ones we should consider blessed or be considered those who inherit the kingdom, the kingdom. And I think we're really scared of that. I think we are really scared of relinquishing what power we have remaining. And as a result, that light, that magic, whatever you want to call it, that has kept us alive and has kept us unified is starting to fade and it's starting to crumble. And we are unwilling to, to see the magic in how, what we see as magic is no, like we're, we consider it devious. We consider it divisive before we say, maybe this is God telling us it's time to change or it's time to relinquish power. And so, you know, for, for the church, you know, I, I have so much hope. I really do. And I think it's, and I think because I, you know, believe that we, we are Easter people, right? We know that we believe that something must die in order to create new life. And I think when people hear me say, it is time to burn what we understand as the church down and let it, and you know give it new life. There's a lot to that we need to give away, give up when we do that. Um, and I will be the first to admit that what that looks like, what that rebirth looks like is very scary and I can't imagine most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I imagine for someone who gives their life to protecting an institution, is just as scared, if not more scared, and so I think that's why for me, you know, having it in the context of a Disney movie where you could sing a song about we don't talk about this, <laughs> so no, 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 we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> um, it felt much better <laughs> to think of it this way. But I, I think, yeah, that's where that's where I'm at with understanding yeah. where we are and as the church right now and seeing where we could be and having so much hope for that. Um, Yeah. And looking for those people who can draw that out of
0: us. Oh, that's Um, so good. That's so good. Yeah. And I I think you're absolutely right. Um, When you talk about those with the least amount of power, you know, are the most powerful in many ways. And, and yeah, and, and that, that I feel like is exactly the description of what you would say, someone who called, you know, a doula, someone who is calling that out. I mean, they're, you know, quote unquote, are essentially in the background, but not really, you know, they're the ones doing the the heavy labor. I think of, you know, an abuelita theology type of, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, okay, so I wanted to ask you, I I mentioned abuelita theology, so I'm kind of like, should I talk about uh, the abuela because I want to talk about the complicated dynamics of, of abuelas. But also, you're talking so much about the church, and 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 I feel like this also goes well with a question I want to ask. So I'll just go into the church, and then we'll okay. we'll kind of end with with talking about abuela. So I love how you, in your article, you connect la casita to. church you know you kind of you call the church or or, let me see what i said you say if the church of jesus christ is the casita then the cracks have started to show in the foundation and you're essentially talking about um this idea of diversity and and representation and so i'll go ahead and just quote the whole quote you say how often have we heard churches yearn to be welcoming and diverse places for all people and how often has the church missed the mark by either tokenizing one leader or only highlighting the diversity on Pentecost Sunday during the Acts 2 reading while casting misfits out because they don't quite fit in, which that made me think of Bruno also. Um, Disney and downtown churches can learn a lot about what it means to think critically and with the intention of creating a diverse representation of the world. So that's where you say, you know, if the church of Jesus Christ is the casita, then the cracks have started to show in the foundation, will we continue to miss the mark or will we see the magic in each person while truly learning what that means? Can you talk to us a little bit about the church as La Casita? I know you kind of just did, but if you want to, you know, talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, again, this goes back to, you know, if we, you know, I think there's, there's two, there's two things happening, multiple things, but for me, the, one of the big things happening is, okay. We see an issue happening within the church, right. Within the, the faith community, our faith communities. And there are those who are going to say, no, nothing's wrong. We just need to continue doing exactly what we've been doing for the last 30 years, 70 years, 100 years, 500 years. And we're like, everything needs to just stay the same. And then I see that, you know, okay, well, let's do something about it. Again, I, I want to hope that there were good intentions behind these things, right? And so that's how, so we got community centers. It's how we got fog machines. And you know, Jesus is my boyfriend music. I don't know. Like there were ways that we were trying to connect to culture or to connect and say, look, we can, we can, we can reimagine what these, what they, what our faith looks like. And I think they were all responses out of fear without really truly unpacking or like in being intentional and con- like, yeah, being intentional about those changes that we've made. And so, you know, when, you know, it's like when we talk about diversity in church and we say, yes, we need to be a more diverse church. That's what, you know, that's what it's gonna look like at the end of times, all people will come in every nation. You know, I'm gonna, oh God, I'm terribly misquoting Revelation, I think. Um, and and I think we, we hear that I'm gonna go, okay, great. Let's put that one black or brown or, you know or other person on our staff and let's put them in every type of promotional material and call it a day. Or let's promote that we have a one Spanish speaking church that meets in our basement on Sundays at three. And look at us. We're, we're diverse y'all. And I, I I think we're right. Like we're, it's like, okay, that was like bare minimum. And so how have we missed i think we've missed the mark and we continue to do so and and i and i say that as a woman who grew up in a denomination that is predominantly white and knew that i was one was one of very few who looked like me and who spoke like me and so hoping that, you know, this place that I had so much hope for that, yeah, that raised me. And that again, the other community that taught me what God was and who God is and the character of God, seeing, seeing that, you know, being appreciative of that, while also seeing that there's still so much work to do in this understanding of what we mean when we really say welcoming for all people and what we mean when we say diversity, because I don't think it means, again, going back to, are we willing to relinquish the power that we have? in church that has historically been rooted in white supremacy. And so yeah the um again back to the group chat when I was like what did y'all think of Encanto and like it was like oh it was they were trying but they really missed the mark on it right you know our colombian friends said it was it was a very broad understanding of latinidad within colombian culture when you know there were hardly any true representations of colombian culture and in a, in in a, in one sense, like I I think that was on the mark because I saw this when he was like, oh, this is a very broad representation. and you know so that that so it was very broad or sometimes representation gets oddly specific. And I you know I, I see that in churches where it is very broad where it's like, oh look, we've got the four people of color here, and we're gonna put them on the website or very oddly specific. And say here's one person in leadership, whether it is a lay person or staff person, and say this is what this person thinks. Therefore, they represent all Latinas or Latinos, and they represent all Black people. And we know that's not true. And I, I think, I think that's that's where the church is, where you know, when we don't truly, with intention, understand what it means to be a welcoming place.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. We're gonna we're going to almost get there, but not really there. And and, and I think it describes um, and I I don't know if it was you that wrote it in the article, but it's like, there's something off, right? It's like an idea that like, you know, we feel like, mm, you know, it's not really right. Yeah. And so I feel like that is something that you, you know, you feel when you when you watch, for example, whether it's Encanto or where you step into a space that they're saying one thing, but it's It's not quite there. And I think that, you know, we all as humans in the world, you know, can sense that we can sense when someone's genuine or when something is genuine or something isn't. And I think that that's where a lot of, you know, disenchantment or um, a lot of these feelings come with the church or, you know, whatever it is, it's that, you know, we're trying or you're quote unquote trying, but there's something still off and we're not going to fully feel, um fulfilled or we're not going to fully feel the fullness of what this could be, you know, if we're mm-hmm. just like just, you know, yeah. just there. Okay. So the last question that I wanted to ask, well, it's not the last, but the last I will <laughs> ask. Going back to what I was saying about this idea of of Awelita theology or an abuelita faith. And um I just loved and I mentioned this earlier, but I just loved how Abuela in the movie is a complicated character. You know, we tend to romanticize our our elders or, and maybe not always, but I would, I will say that even in the writing of Abuelita Faith, I felt like that was something that I really wanted to wrestle with more, but it's hard to, when you're trying to also celebrate and honor, you know, our abuelas and the the sort of the survival and all of these things that they have overcome. But also with that comes, you know, because survival is complicated with that comes um, yeah, just a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. And and that is uh, passed down to different generations. And so if you want to talk a little bit about sort of Abuela's relationship to her grandchildren and her children. And and also I loved I mentioned this earlier, but in the end, Abuela apologizes. I thought that was so wonderful and such a Disney movie because that is not reality all the time. So yeah, so if you want to talk about a little bit about how we see um, the complicated aspect of an Abuelita theology and Abuelita faith in in Canto?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. So the character of Abuelita's character, I think, you know, for my, when I had white friends who would talk about their nanas or their, you know, Gmas or whatever they would call them, and that's not to be fun of the names we we have our own weird names for grandmas but it was always represented as this like kind older just spoiled like the woman who would spoil you and it's not to say that you know I didn't do the same thing but I think there was this sense of the there was just so much that they were not unable they were unable to process or to or didn't have the privilege of being able to process or or relinquish. And um, yeah, so Awadlita felt like so much more like a grandmother figure. Like it was well represented in this way that she is complex, that she comes with. there There's some hurt there while also trying to raise a family and say, look at what we've created. This is so good. And still not allowing herself to be happy about it. And I I think it was, it was, she was such a great character. So I will fight anyone who calls her a villain because I think she, she represents for a lot of us, what our grandmothers and some of our mothers had to go through with being someone who had to deal with disruption in their life in, you know, in violent ways. And having almost no resources to do so. And so having to do it on her own and then yet still continuing to try to make a life for her family. And so it's so interesting because, you know, you have, you know, Mirabel and Abuela are like the same person, right? Like both of them don't actually have gifts. Like they never mention that Abuela has a gift either, but she creates this family, right? And then Mirabel is this person who is, you know, is like, is her, is her equal in a way. So if Abuela was the one who created it, Mirabel is the one that says, okay, now let's tend to this and let's see what, you know, what, what we can continue to, you know, continue to do. But I think in a way, Abuelita is, is, is what happens when we don't allow ourselves to process the trauma that we have been through. And I think we've all seen it in our, you know, in our, in our own Abuelas. And yeah, it's, I think she 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 is the she's a wonderful character who you're right in the end says oh maybe I did get something wrong and I'm sorry honestly I low key think somebody on that team must have been Latina and said you know what I'm gonna put this in there for the girls like I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm sorry like Willa's gonna say I'm sorry and every grandchild of a first generation family is just gonna freaking lose it <laughs> like this is what I needed. Because I think I will, uh, you know, and I um, I see this with so many women, you know, for the for, for the ones who were the first that had to do something, right? And then there's the next generation. And then the one after who then get to be the ones who get to thrive without having to deal with the same shit that the grandmother or the mother had to go through. Um, and I see this with women in ministry where there were the ones who, who were the pioneers so that women my age and a little bit older and younger could say, oh, I didn't have to put up with, you know, I could, I could push back on, hey, that was sexist. Hey, I'm not going to do children's ministry because that's not my calling. You know, like there was just so many things that the pioneers had to do, the first had to do. And I think for those women of who had to be the first, there's so much hurt that wasn't allowed to be processed and we don't give them enough maybe they're not, they're not given the privilege of processing that and, and naming it. And so for Abuela to be able to do that because of Mirabel, that was, so that healing. Was, yeah, it was a healing moment to see that yeah. happen. And so I think, I think Mirabel and Abuela, you know, are, I think they're the same person. And mm-hmm. I think um, for Mirabel, and, and in a way, I mean, I don't know much about this. I just know this from like articles and TikToks about how you tend to your inner inner child right and Mm. so I wonder if like Mirabel was abuela's inner child getting to be the fun one who loves to who celebrates her family but then also says I'm not fine and there's true hurt here and so I need to deal with this because it's not doing me any good because my light's fading if I don't Mm. that's
0: so good Thank you so much for chatting with me and for, um, yeah, just being such a wonderful person to think through this movie with and talk about this movie with and for all the wonderful depth that you bring. So if you want to share, I don't know uh, if folks want to read anything else that you've written or follow you anywhere if you want to let them know.
1: Yeah. So I am a contributing writer for Good Faith Media. I write articles on everything from faith to movie reviews <laughs> and politics. And my current one that's come or one that I'm working on right now is about the show Midnight Mass, which, oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. So a whole lot to process there. Talk about some trauma. We're, we're writing something about that. And um, you can follow me on Twitter at AA Aldape. That's my Twitter name and, or that's my Twitter handle. Um, I didn't come up with anything clever for it. I wrote, like, I created Twitter in 2009 and I was very anxious, so. Um, (laughs) But yeah, follow me there. And Kat, thank you for having me. And I love talking about Encanto and how, how it relates to all of us in different ways. So thank you for having me. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.